My name's Clay Baker. Good morning. How are y'all doing this morning? Good. It's my privilege to be preaching here this morning. In the book of, in the book, Respectable Sins, author Jerry Bridges asserts that evangelical Christians are really good at seeing the obvious, destructive, depraved sins of the world, but we're not so good at seeing the subtle sins of our own hearts. So we can, be, we can be outraged by corruption and appalled at murder and disgusted by promiscuity, but why are we not equally outraged or appalled or disgusted by worry or envy or thanklessness? Bridges says that these sins and others are the respectable sins. They're respectable not because they're any less serious to God, but because they are so indulged in by American conservative evangelical Christians that we overlook them in ourselves. In his book, Bridges has about one chapter for each of these sins, but for one particular sin, he's got two chapters. And that's the sin we're going to be talking about this morning. That's the sin of anger. Bridges defines anger as a strong feeling of displeasure, often accompanied by sinful emotions, words, and actions hurtful to those who are the objects of our anger. He says it's a huge and complex issue. So he thinks anger is a big deal, and he's not the only one. Jesus, in our passage today, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, Jesus is beginning a major new section of his Sermon on the Mount. Now, last week we saw in verse 20, Jesus proclaimed that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the very first topic that Jesus addresses to show us how our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees is the sin of anger. Anger. So anger is not just a big deal to Jerry Bridges, it's a big deal to Jesus. So let's take a look at what Jesus has to say about anger in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22 to start. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, Jesus is saying that anger towards your brother or your sister in the Lord is deadly serious. It's not respectable. It's not okay. It's the spiritual equivalent of murder. Anger is deadly. Anger is deadly. We're going to see that anger is deadly in at least three ways. It's deadly to our relationships with each other. It's deadly to our relationship with the Lord, 
and it's deadly to our witness to the world. We're going to consider each of those in turn, and then we're going to discuss the antidote to anger. But first, I want to say a brief word about how Jesus begins this teaching in our passage. So for this passage and for the rest of chapter 5, if you have your Bibles open, you'll see it's chunked out into different sections with different subheadings like lust and divorce and oath and so on and so forth. For each of those sections, Jesus has this pattern of saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So that first part that you have heard that it was said, that introduces a teaching that would have been common in Jesus's day. But that second part, but I say to you, in the Greek, there's, there's an emphasis on the I. So it, it's this strong assertion, but I, I say to you, it, it's, it's not equivocal. It's not, oh, if you wouldn't mind considering this alternative, or, or would you please maybe think about it this way? No, it's I say to you. And what makes this most remarkable is not that he's having some other alternative teaching, but it's this, it's this emphasis on the I with no citation to any other authority but himself. So Jesus isn't citing another rabbi, and he's, he's not even citing other scripture. He's giving his own authoritative interpretation. When I was in law school, the professors drilled it in our, in our heads that we had to cite authority for pretty much every single thing we said or wrote. So like every single sentence had to cite to some decision by some court, some authority. Because who were we to say that we knew what the law was? We're just law students. Like we thought we knew everything, but we didn't have actual authority. And so we had to cite to some authority for everything we wanted a judge or professor or anyone to take seriously. But Jesus, he's not citing anything. He's saying that he is the authority. And that wasn't lost on the crowd, by the way. We'll see at the very end of this Sermon on the Mount. It says in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, when Jesus finished these sayings, that's the sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. All throughout Jesus' public ministry, as he, as he performed miracles, as he performed healings and, and exorcisms, as he, as he claimed the authority to forgive sins, as he referred to God as, as his father, and as he took on titles for himself like son of God and son of man, all throughout the gospels, you'll see people asking this question, who is this guy? Like, who does he think he is? Who is this Jesus? Is he not the carpenter's son from Nazareth? Who is Jesus? How they and how we answer that question is literally a matter of life 
and death. Who is Jesus? If Jesus is just some guy, then we're not going to care much about what he has to say in this Sermon on the Mount or what he has to say about anger or what he has to say about this kingdom of heaven and how we can get into it. Why should we care if he's just some guy? However, if he is, in fact, as Peter confessed, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, if he really is the eternal second person of the Trinity, God the Son, if he really is God himself, the capital W word who became flesh and dwelt among us, if he really did die, and if he really did rise again, if he really does have all authority on heaven and on earth as he claimed to have, even the authority to forgive sins, then we should care a great deal about what Jesus has to say about everything. Amen? So in that mindset, in your chair right now, with that orientation, let's consider what Jesus has to say about anger. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. That's true. That's true. That's the sixth commandment. That's Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. And he says, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's also true. That's Numbers chapter 35, verse 31. The penalty for murder was death. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus isn't contradicting the Old Testament. We saw back in verse 17 that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. He's not contradicting the Old Testament, but he is saying that there is a deeper truth to the sixth commandment than just what's on the surface. Pastor Chris reminded us last week that Jesus described the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. Whitewashed tombs, they look beautiful on the outside. They're seemingly obeying the law, but on the inside, they're just full of dead bones. They're dead in here because they're not really obeying the law from the heart. Jesus is showing us the heart of the sixth commandment, this astonishing truth that anger is the equivalent of murder. And why is that? How how could that be? Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 says, listen carefully, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In other words, murder is wrong not like just because. Like I know it seems really intuitive to us that murder is wrong, but there's an actual reason it's wrong and it's wrong because every man, woman, and child is made in the image of God and is therefore entitled 
to worth, dignity, respect as God's image bearer. And in the same way, anger directed at someone is disrespectful. It's dishonoring. It's not showing them the worth they are due as a child of God made in his image. Now, this might be surprising to us to read that anger in God's eyes is is the same as murder because, I mean, we all get angry, right? Well, we don't really think of ourselves as murderers, do we? Are we whitewashed? tombs. Remember what we saw over and over again as we preached through 1st and 2nd Samuel. God cares about the heart. 1st Samuel 16:7 says, "The Lord sees not as man sees. We see the external. We see the superficial. We see the whitewashedness." We see thou shalt not murder. God sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Remember, Saul was rejected by God as king because he wasn't following God with his heart, and instead God replaced him with King David because David was what? A man after God's own heart. God cares about the heart and Jesus is teaching us here that the heart of anger is murder. It's deadly. Just let that, let that truth just sink in. Just let it sink in right now as you think about all the ways, even this week, even this morning, that you were angry. Now you might call it irritation, I wasn't angry, I was irritated. I wasn't angry, I was just impatient. I was just, I was just frustrated. It's my favorite, I was just frustrated. I was just a little upset. No, I, those are all euphemisms for anger. We are angry. Just let that penetrate your heart. Anger is deadly. It's deadly in at least three ways. First, anger is deadly to our relationships with other people. All right, this is the obvious one, right? So we all know the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And we know that ain't true. (laughs) Because we can all think right now of some words said to us that cut us pretty deep, right? And what did that do to your relationship with the one who said those words to you? It didn't help it, did it? No, I mean, it killed it or at least maimed it. Those kinds of wounds, they don't heal easily. They leave scars. As commentator Frederick Dale Brunner observes, there are many people in mental wards because hateful names or words are lodged in their psyche like bullets in a spine. I would add there are many people who are depressed or addicted or who are hateful 
angry people themselves because they have been the objects of someone else's hateful anger. Anger is like a, it's like a small fire that can set a whole forest ablaze. That's actually the illustration that James uses. The book of James, chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, he says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are, listen, who are made in the likeness of God. There it is again, that image of God. When we direct our anger at others, it kills. It's deadly. This is just the words. We're just talking about words that we speak. Haven't you talked about hateful, angry actions? That's even more obvious. Anger, anger is deadly to others. It's deadly to our relationships with others. It's also deadly to our relationship with God. It's not just horizontal, it's vertical. James goes on to write, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water or In the words of Jesus, a tree is known by its fruit. In this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing us what it looks like to be his disciple. And if you're truly a follower of Jesus, the tree of your life will produce godly fruit. It has to. That's what godly trees do. That's what good trees do. They produce good fruit. So if you, brother, if you, sister, are harboring anger in your heart and refusing to repent of it, refusing to let it go, then the word of God confronts you, confronts me this morning with the question, Are you truly a follower of Christ? Are you his disciple? 1 John 3, verse 15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So if you're harboring hate, you don't have eternal life in you. 1 John 4.20 says, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So it's not an option. You can't have it both ways. You can't be a hateful, bitter, angry person and be a lover of God 
Because if you love God, then you will love his children. If you're loving him vertically, if you've got that vertical relationship with him, you will have the horizontal loving relationship with others. Now, I think it's a good time to address the question that some of you might be asking yourselves right now. You might be wondering, what's with all these references to brother? Like, you might be thinking, hey, Jesus is talking about brothers and sisters in the Lord here. I got no problem loving them. I'm good there. It's all those wicked, depraved, straight out of Sodom and Gomorrah, unbelievers that I can't stand. That's who I'm angry with. It's them. It's not my brothers and sisters. If that's you, if that's what you're thinking right now, I can appreciate that because you're thinking like a lawyer. (laughs) You're reading the text carefully and you're drawing distinctions. That's what lawyers do. Remember though, When Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, there was this lawyer who asked, well, who's my neighbor? He was trying to draw distinctions too. And what did Jesus say? How did Jesus respond? He told him the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the story. The Jewish man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, robbed, beaten, left for dead on the side of the road. Two of his brother Jews pass him by, even religious people. Who helped him? The Samaritan, the cultural religious enemy, the outsider, the unbeliever, had compassion and showed mercy. And Jesus asked that lawyer, who proved to be the neighbor? And he said, the man who showed mercy and had compassion. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Anger is deadly to our relationship with God because if we harbor anger against our brother or our sister or against our neighbor we're showing that the love of God is not in us go and do likewise he says to us now we do still have all these references to brothers and in the Greek that's gender inclusive it's brothers or sisters okay so Jesus is drawing special attention to this special relationship that we have amongst each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And he is forbidding in this passage anger against your brother or sister in the Lord. And I think he's doing this because he's showing that there is a special importance to how we treat our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that brings us to the third way in which anger is deadly. And that is it's deadly to our witness. You see, it's, it's precisely our love for each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord that witnesses to the world that we do indeed have the love of God in us. Our love for each other shows the unbelieving world that God loves us and that he loves them. 
Listen to these words from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He prays this. Jesus prays this to his heavenly Father. He says, The glory that you have given me, Father, I have given to them. He's talking about everyone who will believe in him. The glory you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. The love of God the Father for God the Son. The love of God for us. The love of God for the world is demonstrated to an unbelieving world when we believers love each other. That's kind of a heart check, is it not? I mean, the degree to which we love each other is the degree to which we witness to that dark, depraved, unbelieving world that God loves them. Think about that. We're family. We're family here, right? Sometimes doesn't family get on each other's nerves a little bit? I, I, lo- I love my earthly sister, Ashley. I loved her when we were kids. We fought. It's pathetic. I think the thing as I look back that we fought about the most was who, was who would have the remote control. I mean, we love that thing. She wanted Blossom, I wanted Batman. Pathetic. We got over it, but we fought. We fought about other things too. And unfortunately, I think the same is true here in the church amongst ourselves. We want things, we want things our way. So maybe we don't like a decision that's made. Maybe we don't like a way a brother handled something. Or maybe we don't like the way a sister said something. Or maybe we just really wish our brothers and sisters would get their act together and kind of pick it up a little bit because I'm really getting angry. And you might be pretty good about keeping that anger in there, or you think you are. But that anger in there, it comes out, doesn't it? Might come out in words. Might be a sharp comment, something kind of biting. Maybe a little sarcastic. Maybe a little critical. Might come out in actions. You're probably not, good Christian, going to like physically lash out at your brother or sister, but you might like distance yourself. You might act a little cool, a little aloof. That anger in our heart, it leaks. It comes out. And then unbelievers, they see it. They see the way we treat each other, or maybe more likely they hear the way we talk about each other, and then they just think, we're a bunch of hypocrites. We talk this good game about love, 
We're not loving our brothers and sisters. We're not showing them love. We're not speaking love about them and to them. And unbelievers look at that and they think, why would I want to be part of that? I got unbelieving friends over here that treat me and treat each other a lot better than those Christians I know. Why would I want to be part of what they got going on? Anger is deadly. Anger is deadly. It's deadly to our relationships to each other, to our relationship with the Lord. It's deadly to our witness to the world. So what then do we do with our anger? We are all going to be a little angry at times, right? Yeah, I, yes, because we are all still sinners, so there's sinful anger that we will continue in, sadly. But not even all anger is sin, really. Jesus was angry. He was angry when he overturned the tables of the money changers. Jesus was angry. In Mark 3, 5, it says he looked at the Pharisees with anger. Ephesians 4, 26 says, be angry and do not sin. So it is possible to be angry, but to not sin. And before you get all excited, because I know what you're doing, I don't have that sinful anger. I have that righteous indignation. Fine, I'll grant you the possibility that there is such a thing as sinless anger or righteous indignation, but I would challenge you this morning, instead of asking the question, well, when can I be angry? How often can I be angry? What kind of context can I be angry in? Who can I be angry at? That the better, much better, more helpful, more fruitful question would be, when I get angry, sinful or not, what should I do about it? What would be good? What would be productive? What would be helpful? What would be God-honoring? The rest of our passage is actually pretty helpful about this, and it's going to serve as the application to this sermon. It shows us that the antidote to anger, because anger is a poison, it's deadly, but the antidote to anger is reconciliation. The antidote to anger is reconciliation. And first, we must seek reconciliation with the one that we are in conflict with. And second, we must remind ourselves, like daily, of the reconciliation we have with God in Christ. So first, we must seek reconciliation. Let let us now read the rest of our passage, starting in verse 23. Jesus says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. 
what I find interesting about this is that it's not telling you what to do when you're angry with someone else. It's, it's telling you what to do when someone else is angry with you. There is a process for dealing with the situation when maybe someone sinned against you and maybe that's caused harm. Maybe you're angry about that. That's Matthew 18, 15 through 20. But Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5 is putting the responsibility for seeking reconciliation on the one who did something that caused someone else to be angry with them. I think Jesus is showing us just how important it is to seek reconciliation. Like even if you're not angry, even if you think like, I'm cool with them, I got nothing against them, that's their problem. No, even if you, even if you didn't do anything wrong, if you think that your brother or sister has, what's the word? Something. If your brother or sister has something against you, that actually means anything. Like anything, any little old thing. If your brother or sister has anything against you, you need to go. You need to go and try to make it right. And yeah, you might not be successful. It might not result in reconciliation. Romans 12:18 says, "If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all." That other person, they might be hardened in their anger, and you might not be able to make it right, but it is on you to try. It's on you to seek reconciliation because you see, anger's deadly for them too. Like it's not all about you. Think about them. Anger is deadly for their relationships. Anger is deadly for their relationship with the Lord. Anger is deadly for their witness, and they're your brother and sister. Or if you're dealing with an unbeliever, and you think, well, they might have something against me, then your witness to them is on the line. If you don't go try to work it out, if they don't at least see you humble yourself and go... They're going to harbor that against you, Christian. Your witness is on the line. Anger is such a big deal that if you think that your brother or sister or anyone might be angry with you, you should run to them. Leave your gift at the altar. In other words, nothing's more important than seeking reconciliation right away. Not even church. Not even going to church is more important than attempting to be reconciled. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. In other words, seek reconciliation immediately before the devil has more time to work more damage in the relationship. Reconciliation is the antidote to anger. We must seek reconciliation with others quickly. And finally, 
we must remind ourselves of the reconciliation we have with God in Christ. And this is true, this is applicable, this is evergreen. Every sermon, every week, every day, this is good. Remind yourself of the glorious truth that you have reconciliation with God in Christ Jesus. Because we all, we all came into the world as sinners. We all are sinners. We deserve the wrath or anger of God, but that wrath, that anger was poured out not on us. It was poured out on his son, Jesus, because he loved us so much. He sent his son, Jesus, to die for us in our place to receive that wrathful anger that we deserve. The father sent the son. The son willingly came and died so that, so that we could no longer be aliens separated from God, spiritually dead, but so that we could be reconciled to God in right relationship with him and actually have the life of him in us. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 20 puts it this way. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God didn't count our sins against us. Instead, he reconciled us to himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our message. That is the good news. And we're ambassadors. We're here to proclaim it on God's behalf, and we, we, we proclaim it first to ourselves. When we're stirred up in anger in here, we proclaim it to ourselves. We were, we are sinners. But God didn't count our trespasses against us, did he? And when you remind yourself of that truth, this reconciliation you have through, through what? Through working hard? through being a really good person? Through attending church weekly and taking good notes? No! The reconciliation we have through faith, through faith in Christ, it's a gift by the grace of God. That's how you get that right relationship. That's how you get eternal life in you. That's when God himself comes to dwell in you through his Holy Spirit. When you remind yourselves of those glorious truths, can't you just feel that anger just melt away? God had every right to be angry with you. And instead he poured out his anger on his son so that you could live. How then should you treat your brother? How then should you think about your sister? Would you not then have those eyes of compassion for the lost who don't know those truths? 
haven't received him. But God died for them too. Christ died for them too. That's the heart of the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. A little more to it than that, huh? Church, harmony, let's be a people who no longer make anger a respectable sin. Let's not let it characterize us. Let's put it away. We're supposed to put off that old self and put on Christ. Let's put him on. Let's put him on fully. Let's put him on over our anger. It's covered in the blood. Church, let's be a people who proclaim that message of reconciliation. Let's proclaim it to ourselves. Let's remind ourselves of those gospel truths. Let's seek it out. Let's live out that gospel. Let's seek reconciliation. Let's be a people who leave our gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. That's our heart. Not harboring anger and bitterness anymore, but is resolving to put it away, be done, and go and be reconciled. Let's be a people who seek his kingdom and his righteousness first in our hearts, in our lives, because he's worth it. Amen?